Well, good evening and welcome to our Wednesday evening study. And uh, just in preparation for beginning the study tonight, I was thinking about uh, uh, the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus walking with them, them not recognizing Jesus, but afterwards in reflection, after they discovered that it was in fact Jesus, uh, the comment, the comment is very significant and it's something that I often think about in my own life. Uh, did not our hearts burn within us? In other words, there's the, there was that real sense of when Jesus was speaking, Jesus opening up uh, to them his thoughts and his conversation, his mind, his will, uh, them receiving that, uh, their hearts warming towards that which was from God and of God. And I pray tonight that that would be our experience. So welcome uh, to the study, it is our desire, certainly my desire, to look into this word. Uh, what is it that God is saying to us um, as we look at this passage from James chapter 2? Um, how can we learn from him? Uh, what do we need to change in our lives? Is there something we need to repent from? Is there something new we need to learn? Is there something about God that perhaps we can discover tonight about his person, about his nature, that we would know him better, that, that we would know and love Jesus more? And so I come with that uh, intention tonight. And, and, and knowing that apart from him being at work among us, that just is not going to happen. And so pray with me. Let's bow our heads as we just turn to him in a word of prayer. Indeed, our God, we know that apart from you working in any circumstance, uh, nothing of value, of lasting value will take place. And, and so again tonight, we turn to you, Lord, acknowledging that uh, we are dependent on you. We acknowledge, Lord, the wonderful gift of your spirit that you have not left us as orphans, but your Holy Spirit within us as your children, as believers, and your Holy Spirit at work in us and through us and even among us in the world that we're living in. And so as we come to the Word tonight, Lord, we, we come again as those who want to learn, but not just to acquire knowledge, but Lord, to, to change, to grow in, in the likeness, the moral likeness of Jesus, that we would be maturing in our faith, in our walk with you. And so committing ourselves to you tonight, I pray for myself, Lord, help me to think uh, simply, uh, clearly, uh, to communicate effectively. But Lord, doing so as your spirit takes the words and even guides that which I say, uh, that it may be a true reflection of this passage that we look at tonight. And so we commit ourselves to you, but praying also that you would make us mindful of others as we go about our daily life in this particular place and city where you have placed us and asking these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so turn with me tonight, uh, James chapter 2. We finally got to the end of, of James chapter 1. And uh, perhaps just to remind you that much of that chapter was focused in on, on trials and uh, God bringing about, as it were, difficulties in our life, either deliberately or, or permitting them and us growing through those various uh, difficulties and trials. And uh, we get to the beginning of chapter 2, and, and really coming to a subject that is very relevant, and probably being relevant uh, down through the ages, every generation finding this to be a particular issue. 
And so follow with me. We're going to, I'm going to read the entire passage from verse 1 to 13. And then we're going to seek to just analyze the passage and see if we can apply it in, in our context uh, at Central um, as well. So let me, let me put up the slide and just see uh, James chapter 2, 1 to 13, loving your neighbor as yourself. So James writes, he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also, also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So just so far, uh, once again, just remembering that this is the word of God. And also a reminder that all scripture is God breathed and useful in so many different ways as Paul points out to Timothy. So the topic before us, loving your neighbor as yourself. And the challenge to love your neighbor as yourself um, has to do with the subject and the particular word used in our translation is showing partiality. Uh, I think it's the NIV version that uses the word instead of partiality, favoritism, showing favoritism, discriminating, showing one person uh, a particular way of, of behavior or conduct toward that particular person and in another instance a different person a different level or different way of, of behavior and so of course we can begin and I do want to begin by just introducing this in a general sense this is a problem that runs throughout society it runs through all areas of society and and very sadly as we see tonight or we'll see tonight it also uh, can be present in the church. So in a broader context, I remember uh, back at school, primary school, high school, many teachers had their favorite pupils. We used to call them teacher's pet. And they were treated in a certain way. They were treated much better. They were given better privileges. They were uh, they were favored and, and others were less favored. And, and, and so there was a, a form of discrimination that took place in the, in the classroom back in when I was at school back in the 60s. 
and the 70s. But not only at school. We can see this uh, across the board. Uh, back in our, own, in, in our own country, in South Africa, if we look back in the broader context of our history, uh, the old South Africa, pre-1994, there's no doubt about it that there was discrimination. The, the white people, the white people had preferential treatment. They had certain privileges. They could live in certain areas. There were certain jobs they could have. And, 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 and others, uh, people who were other than white, uh, could not access certain areas, did not have certain privileges. And so there was racial discrimination. There was certainly a, a showing of favoritism. And we see that now in the new South Africa. In fact, the reverse is now happening. We see now that uh, uh, people of color are, are shown a favor. And uh, we know even in terms of the political arena, the governing party in our country has a, pol a policy of cadre deployment. And, and so uh, people are being discriminated against, even those who are uh, qualified to do a particular job. If they don't carry, if they're not a, a political party card carrying member, they may not get a particular job. So there's favoritism, there's discrimination, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we call it racism. We call it uh, uh, racialism, uh, we, we can call it favoritism and so on. And so it's, it's right across the board. It, it's at school, it's, it's a, at, at the youngest of ages, it's in the political arena, it's certainly in the business context as well where certain people are favored, sometimes just because of a particular personality. Uh, one person will prefer another person. But our concern tonight is not so much to talk about discrimination in the context of secular society. We must expect it there, and, 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 and we'll see later why we ought to expect it there, and we will, we will in fact see it in that context. In our passage, the matter of favoritism or discrimination or partiality is within the local church. And, and that ought to be our concern. We need to be looking at that and saying, is this possible? Uh, is this possible in our church? And, 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 and how can we respond to it? How should we, what can we do about it? And, and, and so James, in this particular instance, my very first point is stating the case. Very, very practical book, the book of James. And in the very first verse of chapter 2, he says, My brothers, so he's speaking to fellow believers, uh, those who are converted. And remember, these people who also were dispersed because of persecution, my brothers. And he instructs them very clearly, show no partiality, no favoritism, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, immediately, if you look at that verse, you should be able to see that there is uh, a principle that James is stating. But in stating that particular principle, he's also highlighting and showing an inconsistency. And uh, the, the, the principle is obviously don't show favoritism. There should be no uh, uh, harmful discrimination in, 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 the, in, in the church. And, and, and so the, the contradiction that, that comes through, if you have a closer look at this verse, is that the people were saying one thing, and yet they were doing something else. And remember, that's much of the theme of this book. It's, 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 it's James bringing repeatedly this importance that it's no use just uh, saying you believe things, or, or, or uh, saying that you have faith, but there needs also to be the outworking of that. There needs to be the works. And so in this instance, they had a creed, in other words, that which they believed, 
and then there was a way that they were behaving, and, and that was their conduct, how they behaved. And it seemed to uh, come to the attention of James as he writes over here that there's a contradiction between these two things, what they believe, their creed, and, and what they were doing, their behavior. And so, well, what is it they believed? Let's have a look at the passage and consider uh, what then did they believe. Notice how James uh, describes his readers. They are those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So James turns their attention to Jesus. Yes, they have faith in Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, and then he adds those words, the Lord of glory. Now, why does he do that? Well, let's think a little bit about that phrase, the Lord of glory. Now, James knows as believers, as professing believers, they would unashamedly declare their allegiance to Jesus, the Son. But let's think a little bit about that being in step with who Jesus is as the Lord of of glory. And there's another passage we can turn to. They would have been familiar with this revelation that comes to us uh, uh, very specifically and succinctly in Hebrews chapter 1 uh, verse 3 describing Jesus. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, now do you get the picture here? Jesus is God. The writer to the Hebrews and also James is showing something of the elevated nature, the supreme nature of who Jesus is as the Lord of glory. Or we could also interpret that the glorious Lord. And what does he do? What is he constantly doing? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So their creed in what they say they believed was that they believed in the deity of Jesus. Yes, that Jesus was fully man, but that Jesus was fully God. And we've got to think about those two aspects of the nature of Jesus. They believed in this amazing truth that Jesus, the eternal God of heaven, existing in eternity past, in that eternal fellowship of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that Jesus became a man on earth. And let me, let me add to that phrase, Jesus humbled himself. If we remember the passage in Philippians chapter 2, that he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, to be grasped, but he, he became a servant. He, be, he took on human flesh. And, and in that process, we see this willing uh, process of, of humiliation that Jesus is prepared to undertake as he becomes a man that he takes on human flesh. And so theologically, this is the statement. This is what we say we believe. Uh, even uh, the, the, the fact that the, the, the glorious deity of Jesus, that he was, is God, that he was elevated uh, in eternity past and, and now into eternity future, it does not stop him 
from humbling himself, taking on human flesh, and he does not remain at a distance, or he, he is not at a distance from man. So maybe to put that in a sentence or a description, James is saying to them, uh, believers in the dispersion, you profess to be followers of Jesus, the one, even though he is the Lord of glory, he lived amongst men. He humbled himself. And, and I can add to that, as you know so well, he lived among sinful men. Without fear, totally unaffected by men's resources, unaffected by men and women's social standing. And in, in essence, James is saying, you are not behaving as Jesus did. Well, how did they behave? And so he goes on, show no partiality. Don't show favoritism. In other words, they must have been displaying some measure of discrimination and favoritism in the context of their local church. So think about that. How does that happen? Well, it happens certainly as people come into the church, into their church, involved in flattering those who they really like to be amongst themselves, buzzing around those who appear to have plenty to offer, uh, those of higher social standing and, and those who are of material substance, uh, people who used, uh, as it were, with the external uh, advantage of, 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 of uh, material wealth and treating them with favor. Those who are powerful, those who are rich, those who had great status or elevated status in the community, they were really being taken care of. They were being looked out for in the local church. But they were ignoring those of lesser status. Those who seemed to be nobodies in their eyes. And so James raising the point with them, in spite of the fact that the very character of God condemns favoritism, they were showing favoritism. Let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Or, if we look at some of uh, God's instructions to his people in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You see over there, uh, the instruction is don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. Don't separate people into you're a poor person and you're a rich person and I'm going to treat you in a certain way and I'm going to treat you in a better way. No, don't do that. How should we treat people? But do so in righteousness. That's how you ought to judge your neighbor. Also condemned in the life of Jesus, even when his enemies came to him. Uh, and they said of him, they said of Jesus in Luke chapter 20, verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And so we certainly see in the life of Jesus that people's positions, thinking yeah, in terms of their status, in terms of their wealth, or in terms of their lower status, or their, 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 the lack of having any kind of material substance, did not sway Jesus in his behavior toward them. 
Sadly, the followers of Jesus were different. They were acting in the exact opposite way. They were flattering the rich. They were ignoring the poor, maybe even despising the poor, uh, treating the poor with disdain, perhaps even ignoring them. And so this kind of calculated favoritism uh, is not pleasing to God. James addresses it head on. And when I started, I, I made the point that this is an issue in society. It has been an issue. It will be an issue until Jesus comes. But in the church, it ought not to be so. It ought to be one of those issues, one of those spots and wrinkles, one of those blind spots that that is addressed so clearly in the word that we need to respond to and be corrected on. There's a quotation I found, uh, Joseph Parker. Um, in fact, just before I, I share the, the, the quote, this favoritism comes under attack because it's inconsistent with the profession of faith in the one whose life was utterly devoid of such a thing. Jesus did not show partiality. He did not act with any kind of harmful discrimination. And so those who are followers of Jesus ought to be also following in his steps. So this is what Joseph Parker says. He whose eye is filled with Christ never sees what kind of coat a man has on. Isn't that a great statement? When your mind and your heart and your eye and your very being is consumed with Jesus, we will be less attracted to that which people have to offer or that which they don't have to offer. And so as we move on, so that is uh, the case stated. There's a problem in the church. They're showing partiality. And, and James has been very direct with them saying, this is not on. Uh, not the way it ought to be. Those of you who are followers of Jesus who humbled himself and uh, came and lived amongst men and now is again exalted on high. So we move on then and uh, miss the point. We're going to move on then to illustrating uh, the case. So verse 2, he goes on and he uses a hypothetical a scenario, a hypothetical case, and he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Now, that, I can, that kind of thing happens today. It happens in our churches, and, and, and those who are listening to this, uh, particularly at our, our Arcadia campus, there is no doubt there are going to be people coming in who are extremely wealthy, and there are people who are going to be coming in who are on the opposite end of the socioeconomic spectrum and they're poor. And there's some people, in fact, who are homeless and helpless and destitute and, 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 and both come in in the same door and the same entrance. And the question is, is how will you treat them? How do you treat them? How do you respond to them? How do you minister to them? So imagine you're on duty at the front door and in comes must they have and how does James describing wearing a gold ring and fine clothing in other words in our day we could say he's wearing a fine suit and and has has the latest pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses tucked 
in the hair and 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 he really seems like man this guy has arrived this guy's really climbed uh, the 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 ladder and he must have a high position and it looks like he may have driven in in a bmw or perhaps even a lamborghini and wow this this guy we're really glad to have him in church this sunday but on the other hand very very uh common occurrence even up at the hill campus those who attend there we will see this from time to time there are those who come in that obviously don't have very much clothing tattered disheveled old torn doesn't look like anybody at all and the clear impression is this person has got nothing to offer what will you do? That's, that's, that's the question that James is prompting his readers to think about. Don't show partiality. Don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. Not uh, out of a legalistic duty or obligation. Because no, no, no. But do so because this is uh, you ought to be following in the footsteps of Jesus. And so he goes on and he gives this uh, response and i've called it a conditional response he says well if if this is the way you respond and what does he say in verse 3 and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man you stand over there or sit down at my feet you see what he's doing that if you respond in that way that is showing partiality that is being discriminatory that's showing favoritism What's happening? The motive. What's the motive if you respond in that kind of way? We see this in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judging these two different people who appear differently on the external appearances. In thinking and deciding this one has something to offer and that one has nothing to offer. This one has a place and we'd love to have this person uh, in our church and we'd love to have this person become a member. And, and this person is kind of a bit of an irritation to us and, and really would be nice if the person didn't really come back next week. Well, if this hypothetical case is correct, then two things are being clarified in this particular verse. Well, what was done? Well, distinctions were made. There was definitely discrimination and there was favoritism. There was partiality. And, and, and the, the point is the person at the door, and if you're the person at the door, uh, having done this, it would be true that you have discriminated on the basis of external appearances. That's what James is pointing out we ought not to do. And then he goes a little bit deeper and he says, well, why, why, why was that done? Why would anybody do that? And the bottom line is because of evil thoughts, because of evil motives. And we're back to what I said earlier on, flattering the rich. And why would anyone want to flatter the riches? Because there's a, a, a prospect, we think, in this person that would benefit us the church or, or, or me individually with this person that is poorer is going to be a burden and a drain and a real pain in the neck. See the motives? Choosing that which would be self-serving 
over and above that which would be God-honoring and in the footsteps of Jesus. Well, that's the, the case. What can we learn? And I've called this third point simply lessons. Lessons that we must take from this particular challenge that James is ra- raising. And the very first lesson is that we need to understand the ways of God. And we often, in my own life and experience, I often quote the fact that God's ways are not our ways. And that, that doesn't only have to do with crisis in our lives when it comes to uh, terminal illness or, or some kind of unexpected uh, happening or bend in the road and, and we sit back and, and correctly guess God's ways are not our ways, but God is all wise and, and God is good and, and we accept it and, and we want to move on. But we also need to be thinking, as James points out in this particular uh, chapter, God's ways of working are so different to our ways of working. So let's have a look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? What's James saying? God does not work in the way that people think and act. We think. I've been guilty of this. Here comes somebody into our church who has business experience, has an MBA degree, and and, and seems to be so capable in terms of communication. And we look at all these natural talents, and we think this person is going to make a huge contribution to our church. God doesn't work that way. God very often uses the poor, the unexpected kind of person, because God's ways are not our ways. And so God has made, and he continues to make, those who have no reputation in the eyes of the world, heirs of the kingdom. That Jesus that taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. Wasn't it said of Jesus, back even in Isaiah, the prophet, that he was thought of as having no reputation, and yet he was the very one used to bring about redemption from sin? God chooses many poor and unexpected kind of people in the world for his purpose. In fact, I was thinking about this and I thought, what about the calling of his disciples? Poor fishermen. They were not the educated, all of them. The Apostle Paul was, but not many of the disciples. They were just ordinary folk. And and, and I remember uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's testimony. Uh, that morning when he was converted at that little primitive uh, Methodist church in, in, in London. And, and there was someone preaching who stood in for the preacher who couldn't make it because of the snowstorm and, and, and the heaviness of the weather. And, and one person stood up, he said, was incapable or incapable of preaching. And, and he preached the message and he repeated himself and he repeated himself and he repeated himself. 
But God used that unknown person, that, that incompetent preacher, to bring about the conversion of Spurgeon, who became known as the Prince of Preachers, even today still known as the Prince of Preachers. God's ways are not our ways. God uses people that we think he cannot use or not capable of being used. And so we need to see that God's choosing is not on the basis of external advantage. Rather, God chooses and raises up people according to his own purposes and glory. God has his way. And remember that God is all powerful and God is at work in this world. And God could take the weakest instrument. He can take the most fragile and broken jar of clay if you like and and use that broken vessel we are broken vessels and uses us and what does that do it shows that god is the one at work and not the individual who gets the glory but god does so every true believer whether you're a rich believer a poor believer uh, in the eyes of this world uh, if you've come into the kingdom of god it would be that you've come as one who is poor in spirit, one who humbles himself or herself before God, uh, not flashing forth what you have and what you can do, but simply acknowledging nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so what is it? What we're seeing over here is that God God is, is saying that we ought not to look at people and, and decide on the basis of their self-sufficiency or their arrogance or their pride. We, we, we ought to treat people without partiality. Don't show favoritism because it's a sin to discriminate. It's a sin to show favoritism, especially against those whom God himself reaches out. And the point is God who he reaches out, whether the person is rich or poor, to those who are poor in spirit, those who are humble and contrite in heart. And James adds in verse 6 an argument about the rich and the poor. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And yet you go running after them, thinking that they will be valuable instruments in the local church? No, no, no. Humility. Poverty of spirit, contriteness, is what we ought to be looking at. The gospel is the call of God's free grace to sinners irrespective of their personal uh, uh, accomplishments, uh, irrespective of their outward appearances and circumstances. And so then he, he gets on to the next point, not only understanding the ways of God, but there ought to be the practice of the royal law. Now, the royal law is something we're familiar with. It's the umbrella statement for the entire moral law revealed in the Old Testament. And what is the royal law? It is to love your neighbor as yourself. That changes the whole scenario when we look at people, even coming into our church on a Sunday as they attend week by week, as I'm going to treat that person in, in a way that I would like to be treated if I were that person coming into the church. But we do know, we do know that the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself, follows, or we could say presupposes, a commitment to the first and the greatest commandment, which Jesus described as to love the Lord your God 
with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the bottom line is those of us who are believers, there needs to be the access, the penetration, the life-affecting gospel in the lives of individual people, knowing Jesus as their Savior, knowing Jesus as their Redeemer and Lord. And so when that change comes about, and there's a turning in disposition now to, to love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength. It's not just a, a disposition toward God, but it will affect our attitude towards our fellow human beings. And specifically in this context, to those who come among us in the local church. Not discriminating, not showing favoritism, but treating people, uh, practicing the royal law. So how do we go about that? And, and there's a, there are steps, there's a process, there's, there's, there are uh, realities that we need to consider. And I think in the first instance, as we practice this royal law, we need to recognize that there are times, there are many times, where there's the need for us to admit sin. It's very easy to say, oh, I don't show favoritism. I'm not... Uh, a racist. Uh, uh, I am not anyone who discriminates. And, and Don't pretend that you are someone who has risen above the heights of having the remaining marks of sin. You have them and I have them. We all have them. We will all have them until Jesus comes for us or he calls for us. But in that process of waiting while we're on this earth and there is an identification and tonight might be one of those occasions where there is the identification of, hang on a minute, this is a blemish in my life. I am someone who discriminates. I am someone who treats some people with favor and other people with disfavor. And so, Lord, through this word tonight, you're showing me unrighteousness. You're showing me that there's sin in my life. And so we read in verse 9, very uh, explicitly, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Guilty, guilty. This is sin got to be dealt with. Favoritism shows itself in people sometimes saying, yeah, but I, I, I love these people, but it's just those. No. Love your neighbor as yourself. We need to show grace to all of those who are, um, who are among us in our circles of influence. So be honest, admit the reality if there is the presence of any kind of partiality expressed in your life. And that's, that's a, a starting point of moving towards growth in maturity and, and also transformation into the, the moral likeness of Jesus. But secondly, I want to look at accepting God's explanation. Have a look at verse 10 now. Now this is what we've got to understand. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, do you, do you see the point? The explanation given by James, led by the Spirit, that we need to understand is that either you keep all of the law, because if you just break the law in one instance, you're sunk spiritually. That, that's essentially what he's saying. The, the, the law is like a tightrope, and, and you only need to fall once. And the truth of the matter is we stumble in many ways. And so to admit that you're a sinner, to admit that you have committed sin, instead of pre- pretending to be righteous or, 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 or taking on some kind of self-righteousness, there's no need to do that. Because the fact of the matter, as Paul writes to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if you have not murdered or if you have not committed adultery, but, but you've, you've, you've uh, discriminated or you've shown partiality, you're a lawbreaker. And in fact, Jesus takes it a step further. Even if you have not murdered, but you've hated somebody, or if you've not committed physical adultery, but you've looked with lust at at a particular uh, person, then you've committed adultery and you're a lawbreaker. And so the point is, it drives us always to the gospel. You cannot find hope in the law. You cannot find hope in, 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 in aiming towards some kind of a standard of righteousness, because whatever standard you attain in your own strength is not good enough. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how long you try. It doesn't matter how many things you get right. There will always be something that you get wrong. And so we're driven to the cross. We're driven to Jesus. We're driven to understand that apart from the work of Jesus on our behalf, We have no hope. We have no standing before God. We have no acceptance from God. It drives us to Jesus. And so we need to understand even the challenge that comes to us in this particular instance in James is not a means of salvation. It it does not mean if you're a person who really is making an effort to love your neighbor as yourself, you're somehow going to earn credit with God. No, it will be pleasing to God only if you are a believer. It's, 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 it's directing you in the path of sanctification after your conversion as a believer, as one who is being changed, one who is being transformed into the likeness of, of Jesus. We ought to be pursuing a holy life. We ought to be changing more and more to be like Jesus. So we're not trying to save ourselves looking at a passage like this and saying, well, I'm doing okay. Uh, I can pat myself on the back. No, 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 no. We fail. We fall. We need Jesus. And so thirdly, act on the Lord's will. Verse 12 really sums it up so nicely. So speak... And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What what is James saying over here? 
He's saying when you have received mercy, mercy then becomes an expression, an outward expression of your own life. Mercy must be uh, our way of life as believers. And, and, and so in this particular instance, when we're talking about those who in our eyes are not acceptable on the basis of external experience or external appearances, because we have been shown mercy, because God has reached down by grace and touched our lives, we too, in turn, are willing, ought to be willing, must show mercy to others. It's the same as forgiveness. Having received forgiveness, we give forgiveness. Having received mercy, we show mercy. And, and, and so that's the challenge at Central Baptist Church. There are people who are going to be different to you. There are people that you're going to think are the unlovables. There are people you think they don't really fit into your particular socioeconomic uh, levels and, and rankings in society. Well, set that aside. You, you too have been shown mercy. I too have been shown mercy. And so show the love of God. Reach out to that person, extend a hand, not because of what they have to offer, but simply because they're an individual, don't forget, made in the image of God, but a person who is lost because of depravity and because of sin, a person who is in need of salvation. And so those who are true believers, and, and James is writing to those who are professing to be true believers, you're only a believer because God has shown mercy to you. You also, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as a result of us being shown mercy, you and me being shown mercy, we must, we can do no, uh, no other than extend a hand of mercy to others in living out that royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. And Lord, I pray to that end tonight, a challenging message. Uh, we, we all gather together, birds of a feather flock together. We don't always have eyes to look and see who else may be coming in, who else maybe you have sent in to be ministered to, to be reached out to. And so give us a sensitivity, give us a heart, Lord, of mercy to reach out to people who are unlike us, to people who also are in need of salvation. In, enable us, Lord, give us heart to extend compassion to, in our opinion, people who are unlovable. But we know, Lord, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Give us that kind of heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So just one more slide, and it's the slide of the questions. And uh, if you are in a group, uh, just to leave that up for a couple of moments, snapshot on your cell phone, you can have that as a record. You can use uh, those Questions for discussion and perhaps even in your own personal time. Uh, reflecting on the subject, this, this subject, I don't think there's any one of us that can never be, that is 
ever completely free from not showing favoritism. And so pray that the Lord would help us all grow in the area of loving others, loving your neighbor as yourself. So God bless you, be with you. Looking forward to Sunday as we get together and on the Lord's Day as we continue to uh, study His Word, as we worship together, and, and as God is at work among us and through us to His glory. Trust that you have a, a good rest of the week. Amen.